Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're finally going to discuss Intel Alder Lake. All the good, bad, and ugly surrounding this new launch for Intel. I am so excited this week to talk about this. Then we head to Camera Corner, where Wendy will discuss camera firmware updates. So sit back, relax, plug in, because Hardware Addict starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, a resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage and hardware Padawan. Let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Padawan, what have you been doing? I have been doing something different that with my workflow. So I've been testing out different hardware setups. So I have a new ultrawide, which we talked about last episode. I have had it for a little while, and it is really nice. But at the same time, I found that working on the ultrawide needs a little bit of more extra setup than a regular size monitor. So I'm still working on trying to get that workflow to be ideal. Well, let's talk about that for a second, if you don't mind, just so people understand an ultra wide monitor is in, in a lot of cases, you can actually split those into two separate screens virtually, basically on the screen itself. Mm -hmm. You can split it into two 1920 by 1080s or something like that because there's so much real estate full screening. Something doesn't really look right on it usually. And that's kind right. of the issue, right? Is the tiling and trying to figure out where windows go because the monitor's so wide. Exactly. And watching a movie on it is awesome. But uh, doing anything else kind of has some issues. So the problem is it has a... Uh, I, I've been doing the split monitor thing or the window on one side and one, another window on another side, which is cool, and I'm doing that right now for the recording. But the issue to me is kind of silly, and I know, but whatever. I kind of like my stuff in the center of the screen and splitting it does the opposite of that. It puts it all on the sides of the screen. So I, it is functional, but it's not ideal for exact workflow. So I'm trying to create a way to quickly move windows around and do a more tiling approach. But it's, it requires a little bit of setup for what my purposes are. So I'm still, I'm getting used to that. But I do like the idea of the ultrawide and it has been useful in a lot of ways. But it's just, I've only had it for a little while, so I'm not super used to it yet. I think I will get used to it is at it some point. Is it the screen but. real estate when you put something in the middle and you've got all this real estate on the left and right side that bugs you? Or what is it oh, exactly? Because no, no, no. I'm sure a lot of people are wanting to get an ultra wide and aren't thinking about this being an issue. Well, the thing in the middle is is fine. It's just getting it into the middle easily. I want to create shortcuts to make it faster to move everything around. And I've already done a little bit of that, but I found some new solutions to test out to see if I can you know, make it easier. So it's not really about like where it is and how it works and how it looks. I actually don't mind having a 1080p or even like a, what's it's a 1440p monitor. So if it was 1920 by 1440 right in the middle, totally fine with that. The extra space on the side doesn't really matter to me. It's more or less like when I want to move the window to that exact spot, it's kind of difficult without having something set up to manage that for you. So I don't have, by default, what I use doesn't come with a solution to do that. So I'm going to work on, I've already tried a couple of things and it didn't really work exactly. So I'm still trying to figure out the best way to go forward with this workflow. But so far, I do like having an ultra wide and I do, I do think it is an improvement to my previous setup where I had a, a triple monitor setup, but it also was a little bit too much pixels just because they were like kind of taking up a lot of space on my desk. And this right. has gives, this gives me like 90% the same amount of space or at least 80% the same amount of space, but it doesn't take up so much of my desk. So I can do, a, I can actually use other parts of my desk, which is great. Nice. Uh, and speaking of which I started using my laptop as a way to work on other things with a different focus. So I always, well, I just recently realized that I get distracted really easily. Squirrel. I knew I, not that easily, but it's still, I, I'm like doing something and then I go, oh, I should check my email. 
or I'm doing something and I'm like, oh, I got a notification. I should check it. I could check my uh, matrix messages or my telegram messages or et cetera, et cetera, no matter what. And I would just constantly get sidetracked. So what I did is I put some of my work on my laptop and then I just leave the room of my main computer and I don't have that problem of not ever getting distracted. So it's interesting because I got the laptop for the like a secondary purpose when we talked about before and now it's become a primary for different types of work because it just makes it easier for me to focus on that particular thing. Nice. How has that changed the way you work? Because you're going from a desktop system where you have mouse and keyboard, larger screens, smaller screen, or the touchpad affect anything you're doing, or you just don't do things on that piece of hardware that need more fine touch? Well, it depends on exactly what I'm doing, but most of the time when I'm using my laptop, it's doing show notes for various podcasts, or I'm writing articles, or anything that is, you know, browser-centric, documentation-centric, that kind of thing, and not really, you know, I'm still using my big computer, my big, my ultra-wide for the video editing and things like that, the more intensive stuff. Uh, so the the laptop isn't really a hindrance in the sense of its power because what I'm using it for doesn't really need that much power, and it's actually a pretty decently powerful laptop in the first place, but it can handle pretty much whatever I want. The only thing that I've ha- I've found that I don't like about it is it, the lack of ergonomics in any way whatsoever. Like <laughs> a laptop is not designed for ergonomic usage. It maybe is like for someone who needs a, a computer for an hour a day or something. If you need for a long term usage, you got to have some other kind of setup for it. And I'm still working on trying to figure that out. I have a really nice laptop stand. Because I have a desk where I have two laptops on it. And I have a really nice metal laptop stand that allows me to adjust where that laptop sits up on that desk. Mm -hmm. Which helps me with where I keep my hands and making sure it's more ergonomic. So I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But that's something for you to check out that may help. Yeah, that that definitely sounds like something I need to check out. So Wendy, what have you been up to? Magneto started a new job this month, and on the very first day when he walks in, they hand him a laptop, a work phone, and an iPad. And he shows back up home with all this hardware, and it's like, um, okay. <laughs> How long? I need has you to it help lasted? me with this. <laughs> so far, we're doing pretty good. The iPad came with this like heavy-duty drop case. The phone came with a case, and he's still mechanicking. That part hasn't changed, but he's going around to different customers, their locations, working on different pieces of equipment there on hand. And the company that he's working for, they do all of their time cards, all of the client-side work order stuff through technology. There is no more is a paper work order in which you hand out. No longer is there a paper time card that's being punched. You clock in and clock out on the company-issued iPad. And this was probably the worst part of starting the new job for him. He's like, the work I can do, right? He's been mechanicking for years. It's not necessarily stuff that he's worked on before all the time, but stuff that's pretty easy for him to learn. Some of the stuff he's worked on before transferred over pretty good. The hard part was... Now I have to use this technology all the time. So far, it's working pretty good. The tablet, when it showed up home, I took the case off, cleaned it all up, got it ready to go because he was complaining that the touch wasn't working as good on it, but because of the heavy-duty case that was on it, and it has a built-in screen protector in the case, sometimes their hands are greasy or oily. That had just enough of that had built up that it wasn't always responding in the way it should. So I took that apart and cleaned it up really good for him. And I haven't really touched the laptop too much. But of course, you know, I had to peek in at it. What model is it? What hardware is it running? Naturally, as a hardware addict, yes. Yeah, I had to see what is it? What is it running? Right. Uh, And you guys will never believe this. Or maybe you will. But as he was going through the bag that this laptop came in, there was this extra little piece of hardware in the bag and he hands it to me and he's like, oh, it's a CD drive. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, mm, no, this isn't a CD drive. 
this is an interchangeable floppy drive, so you can pop out the CD drive <laughs> and put it in a floppy drive. Wow. <laughs> Technology. <laughs> a floppy drive. That's kind of crazy. I really, really wanted to put it in, but I refrained myself. It is not a play system. It is a work-issued system, and so I stuck my hands in my pockets, and I walked away. You know, we could probably talk to Jill, who has a museum of stuff. I know she has floppy disks and those things and get her to send us like a shareware version of Doom or something we could load on that. <laughs> I mean, it would be fun to play that with that again. That would be so much I fun. love the sounds a floppy disk drive makes. It was the best sound ever. Like that to me could put me to sleep, just hearing those drives go back and forth. It was awesome. Yes, absolutely. And the panic That's when a- you could tell they weren't reading. That's or true reading too. Properly. There was panic for that. I'm I'm happy that Magneto's starting a new job, so good luck to him in the new adventure. I also had a friend who worked in the gas business, you know, basically digging lines for gas and things, eventually moved up into management. And after he got the job, I was congratulating him, and he was all excited. And then he came to me with, very similar to your husband, a laptop, a phone, and a tablet. And he's like, I don't know how to use Excel, and I don't know what I'm doing with this stuff. Because it wasn't a part of his day-to-day life or his entire life up until that point. He was fantastic at doing gas lines, but he had never done the technology side. And it's kind of interesting to see that these jobs that typically didn't have technology involved now all do in some portion. And so we sat down, we did training and eventually got him you know, to where he was comfortable enough sending emails and utilizing the internal system that they had. But it was very interesting for me to experience a you know, grown adult that's not around this stuff. And I think we take it for granted that we've been around this so much or it's become our passion that other people don't like it as much as we do or don't find the same joy in it, you know? Yeah, and the panic that can come with all I want to do is fix things, big machinery things. Why do I have to touch this iPad? Right. I just want to get in there and work with my hands. Yeah, I got to play with some, or at least look at some much older hardware. You've got some newer hardware going on and one that I've kind of been eyeing. So tell us about it. So this is kind of crazy. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it on the show. I don't know. Maybe I'll blur this. I'll blurb the word out when I say it because I've been such a harsh critic over Google. But I had a chance to get a hold of a Pixel Pro 6. This we covered on the show yeah. before. Hey, Michael, shh. <laughs> um, the Pixel Pro 6, and I've been, I, I had the other Android that I had before this, because I have the iPhone 12, and I always have an Android and an Apple device. It's just part of my job to have both. And I had the Samsung S20, which I despised. It's the worst phone I have ever used in my life. The Bixby... The Samsung has a duplicate of every single program that Google has, but they also have the Google one on there too. Like you have a Samsung assistant, you have a Google assistant, you have a Samsung messenger, you have a Google messenger. There's just duplicate. You have a Samsung browser, you've got the Chrome browser. There's so much duplication. The UI doesn't make sense. It's sloppy. It's messy. I could not stand another second with that Samsung. So I get the Pixel Pro 6, get it out of the box, go through the setup, And this is a proper Android experience, minus the privacy problems. It's a proper Android experience from a UI standpoint. The hardware is screaming fast. Now, I know people will go out there and say, well, this chip's not as fast as the latest Samsung S21 and all that. It's so so fast and so fluid, you can't tell the difference. Well, also, it doesn't have to be as fast because it doesn't have to run double the bloat. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you know, you make a really good point because both of them were 128 gigabyte. I transferred everything over, all the photos, all the videos, all the applications from one phone to the other, which is really neat in the Android. You just plug USB-C into both and the app basically transfers everything over, which is very, very nice and convenient. And my Samsung with the 128 gigabytes was like 86% full. My Google Pixel with all the same stuff is only 36% full. So it tells you how much bloat and junk was being included with that Samsung device out of the box, just, you know, on top of all the apps and everything else that I had. So it's not only the speed, though, it's the features, like the Magic Eraser, which is utilizing, of course, their AI machine learning technology, is absolutely fabulous. You could take a picture 
uh, and say you have an object in the room or somebody in the room that you want gone out of the picture and you just click magic eraser in the edit and then you scrub your finger across it and it removes that person and it perfectly blends the background. Like it's, it's magic. It's like magic, Michael. It's like real freaking magic. <laughs> Why it's called it a magic like eraser. I'm telling you, Wendy, yeah. you would love this. <laughs> like it would just cut out so much editing. I have looked at so many reviews while well, I wouldn't use it professionally, but I've actually looked at quite a few reviews on this. And if you've listened to the deal and extend that dropped on Wednesday, I'm talking about this phone and the OnePlus 9 phone, kind of back and forth between the two. One of my standoffs was this is a brand new CPU, first generation, Google's first take on this. And I've been like, uh, I don't know that I want to necessarily adopt first gen technology because sometimes that can come bite you in the butt. Of course, one of the things that I was looking at between these two phones is if I have a phone I can root and ROM, like that stuff is happening almost immediately after getting the device. Pixel Pro 6 already has root available for it, which I think is really cool and shows some promise of having custom ROMs available for it. So that was one of the things I'm like, uh, how well will they work? How will the camera work after you put something like Lineage OS on it? Are you still getting some of the benefits of all the work that they've put into, especially the back end processing on the camera for it? Or am I better off just to go with a OnePlus 9, still have some super awesome hardware and not have to deal with that first generation CPU stuff? But it sounds like you're liking it so far. I love it. It actually kind of reignited a little bit of my love for Android. Before it was utilizing Samsung, I really felt like, oh my God, Android is so far behind Apple. It's not even a competition. That vanilla experience is so much better. And then when I, but when I went to the Google Pixel and I realized with that, like you said, Wendy, the vanilla experience where they're not putting all that bloatware on. In fact, one of the reasons why I picked this phone as an Android was, I'll be doing some videos on this, the privacy policies of the device manufacturers themselves will horrify you. Samsung's privacy policy specifically is one of the worst I've ever seen in an industry. If you read through their privacy policy online, you will want to vomit. It makes Google look like their lineage OS in comparison. But Samsung's not alone there. If you look at all the phones, Sony, Samsung's, all of them, their privacy policies are not good. They do not leave a warm feeling in. Google's privacy policy is very interesting because while it has a lot of those same things, there's also a setting in Google to turn all of those same things off. Now, the question is, do you trust Google that they're actually turning it off? That's a different show. But the point is that at least they give you some control. Whereas the other device manufacturers, if you're going to stay with stock Android, do not. Of course, you're going to put your own ROM on it. Like what you're talking about, Wendy, it really doesn't matter. But that was one of the primary principles of why the Pixel Pro 6 is now in my pocket. As someone who's currently using a Samsung device, I feel really good about my choice now. <laughs> Thanks, I'm sorry. Ryan. We'll get you a new phone, man. You're giving Michael all kinds of warm, fuzzy feelings. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, there are, there is one thing I do. Uh, when I, I don't have a regular Samsung experience because I hate their interface or One UI or whatever it's called. I think it's the worst I've ever used. I even would rather go back to HTC's like Sense UI or yep. whatever. And I replaced it with Nova Launcher, which makes the phone usable. And I like that much, much better. So the only reason I even was willing to, to stick with the phone I have is because I could use Nova Launcher which is a cool thing about Android that you can change your launcher out like that. So even if I did get a Pixel or something, I probably would still do the Nova launcher approach. Nova and Apex are both pretty dang good launchers because I'm the same way. It doesn't. I don't even like Google stock launcher. I don't like the way they work. I want to be able to customize it. I might have to share a picture of my home screen for everybody. It is so plain. It's like gray. And some text on the bottom. <laughs> like, that's that's it. Just it's like a terminal. Plain. Just like you like it. Yeah. <laughs> this episode of Hard Radix is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now is the perfect time to dive into the digital ocean. 
Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With the app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever before using a simple, intuitive interface. Simply point the app platform to your GitHub or your GitLab repository and let it do all of the heavy lifting. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, or even container images, you can let the app platform handle all of this simply by pointing your GitHub or GitLab repository to it, and by running app platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your call significantly lower than with other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path for those who are already using Kubernetes in their infrastructure. As a Hardware Addicts listener and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, they're giving you a $100 free credit just by going to the, the URL do.co slash DLN. So go there to get started with your free $100 credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. This week in our core story, we're going to be talking about Intel. It's the game of CPU thrones. And Intel is looking to take its throne back. And they have put their new architecture in the ring. They're doing their best ingenuity that they have. And we're going to talk about whether they have what it takes to get their seat back here. So first, Intel is using their 10 nanometer fabrication. And this, of course, is an improvement from what we've talked about in the past. We all love Intel on this show. We love what Intel has done over the years. We love Intel's contributions to open source, but they've been using 14 nanometer. They've been stuck on that. Well, everybody's been kind of passing them up, not only stuck on it, but I would say running it into the ground would probably be a better term since <laughs> AMD has been it sounds like yeah, it. kind of taking them to lunch with Ryzen. And when I say running it in the ground, it's because they just kept trying to overclock those poor chips, that 14 nanometer architecture as far as they could to try to keep up. But finally, they're on 10 nanometer. And for everyone who hasn't listened to all the shows, AMD's on the seven nanometer process currently. But Intel's been doing, really did amazing considering to even compete at all with 14 nanometer to the seven. So we know Intel has the chops. They have the intelligence to do some incredible things. In this new Alder Lake setup, they're also pulling out another trick, one that they're kind of taking from ARM here with a big little architecture included. So in these chips, they're gonna combine big and fast performance cores like we're used to for latency sensitive work. And then they're gonna combine that, or they did combine that, with small and powerful efficiency cores that will handle the smaller stuff. So this was really interesting to me because it's the first time we've seen kind of a hybrid on this x86 platform of using the big little architecture that ARM's so well known for. And of course now Apple Silicon is based on as well. And we know the performance of that has been quite fantastic. So that was a pretty neat move. Do I have your attention yet on them in Intel? Is it piquing your interest? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, the fact that they, um, they're having a hybrid chip sounds super interesting, especially when there's, you know, you don't always need massive performance. I love seeing a company take some risks and do some different things. And I feel like Intel's starting to do that now. And remember the old Intel, we'll call them, not this new Intel that's taking some risks, but the old Intel, remember when they came out, when AMD announced that they were going to have PCIe 4.0 and they released it and Intel kind of laughed it off because Intel was still kind of the single core performance champion of the time. And they were like, nobody needs 4.0. Well, Intel's changed their tune big time on pushing through the latest technology because of course with Alder Lake, they're coming with PCIe 5.0 Oh, and it's snap. the first board to include DDR5 memory on top of it. So now they're starting to kind of push the technology barrier here of what's possible on their stuff, trying to surpass kind of AMD in there. And we know that's a big deal because the PCIe 5.0, that's going to bring you the throughput that you need to really get the max performance out of your machine. So that was a pretty cool move in my opinion. And it's one of those things that's really, really nice if you're going to go ahead and upgrade your CPU knowing that you are in some way future-proofing your upgrade. So you may not be able to get your hands on DDR5 RAM, but your system can handle it when you have the ability to upgrade that something else. I love seeing CPUs having that new technology supported 
So you can run this chip for a much longer time. This also is a good example of how competition th makes companies thrive right. because it makes them forced like, to work harder. Because previously when AMD announced that thing, Intel's reaction was of something that people would be very disappointed in because they basically just, you know, dismissed it. And now in order to fight back, they're, you know, going even more into the future than AMD has done. So I think this is fantastic news. Yeah, and in addition to this, this new design is using Intel's smart cache architecture, which is fantastic, and it's going to share the L3 cache with both the performance and the efficiency cores. So they are pulling out all the stops, right? They've got the new uh, infrastructure for how they're fabricating these processors. They're using a hybrid infrastructure to build these with the big little cores. And then they are making sure that you have the absolute max amount of throughput. And through that throughput, they're also providing enough cache on these processors. And they're sharing that cache between these cores in the smart cache architecture that they're using so that you have the most efficiency possible. So they didn't, they pulled no punches on this, which I love seeing Intel do stuff like this. And this is new for Intel. This is the newest thing. Intel has never in my life done this. They're aggressive, and I mean aggressive in their pricing of these new chips. So how, how aggressive are we talking about? The flagship processor, the Intel Core i9-12900K, which is 16 cores, 24 threads. This is the best of the best, the top of the line, 589 bucks. That is amazing. That wow. is a huge price difference compared to what you typically expect an i9 coming from them. I just wish they would have taken this same treatment to their naming scheme. I know, right? <laughs> we talk about yes. naming a lot on this show, but it does matter. Like, it's kind of like my friend, you know, oh, he has a Ryzen. It sounds really cool. Oh, he has a Threadripper. Really cool. I have an Intel Core i9-12900K. Like, eh, okay. It's just not as cool. <laughs> that sounds so cool. Twelve nine. I mean, it's Alder Lake tech. Well, if, if you had it, but that's not even very aggressive. Alder Lake, you know. Yeah, that's just a code name, though. Right, that's and more it, of a even family then, like, name. Like all their code names are, eh. mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Because they always they also talk about the, like every single code name they've had is kind of like, eh, that's well, no, they did have a Skull Canyon. That was yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. They but, need like the family of death destruction, and then the the CPU itself is like nuclear skull or something. Like they they need something. <laughs> You know, really aggressive. Okay, maybe I went too aggressive, but you get my point. Core destroyer. Does that mean it overheats? I mean, <laughs> it is Intel. Well, we're going to get into the heat thing because that's an interesting point you bring up there, Wendy. But we're not there yet. We're Right now, we're celebrating. Let us celebrate, then we'll talk about the ugly stuff. I do love this pricing, yes. They do have the Core i7-12700K as well, which is 12 cores, 20 threads, which is $409.00. And then I think the star of this entire lineup and pretty much everybody who's been reviewing this agrees is the Intel Core i5-12600K, which gets you 10 cores, 16 threads for $289. And it's a beast. Ooh. I love the fact that they're not necessarily smallest CPU because that's typically the i3 in their i line. But... Yeah. The more standard one, the one that's going to run in most of the laptops that you're issued as an employee, a lot of the ones that they'll be using as schools and such, not only is the price awesome, but the specs of this are great. I used to kind of snub my nose at an i5, especially if I'm putting it under heavy workload, have to be at least an i7. But this is one of those cases that it looks like Maybe an i5 will work for a lot more workflows or heavy lifting than it used to. Yes, absolutely. Everything I've seen come out of this i5 is it's a beast. It almost feels like Intel put all of their effort, honestly, into the i5, knowing, like you said, that most people were probably going to end up there or at least start there. The i5 is quite beastly. I mean, it's just two less cores in the price is so good there. 10 cores, 16 threads for 289 bucks in this market is quite outstanding. Some other interesting facts about the architecture is that the P cores are hyper-threaded, while the E cores only have a single thread. 
So the 16-core i9-12900K comes with eight P-cores, your performance cores that support hyper-threading, and eight single-threaded E-cores for a total of your 24 threads. And then when we talk about the frequencies here, the P-cores have 3.2 gigahertz base, but a peak of 5.2 gigahertz with the Turbo Boost Max 3.0, which is insane. The E cores have 2.4 gigahertz base and stretch up all the way. This is efficiency cores all the way up to 3.9 gigahertz via the standard turbo boost. Uh, it also comes equipped with 30 megabytes of L3 cache and 14 megabytes of L2 cache. And that is a big jump for Intel from where they've been. We're getting a lot more cache. We've got a lot more room on a processor because of the new fabrication process. And now we're getting more cache on there which of course is going to make this far more efficient. Just to compare, because we talked about this a lot when Ryzen was dropping a 12 core, 24 thread Ryzen 9 5900X and the 16 core, 32 thread Ryzen 9 5950X has 32 megabytes of cache and 64 respectively of L3 cache with 105 watt TDP rating on them. So they're really kind of neck and neck there with the cache. Also, one of the things people like when they got Intel is the integrated graphics that come with it. And the 12900K comes with the integrated UHD graphics 770 engine with 32 EUs that run at 1700 megahertz. And that's a big advantage over the graphic list 5950X and 5900X. So if you don't plan to use a discrete GPU, or you can't get your hands on a discrete GPU, Intel kind of wins that game just by default right there. But not everything is paradise, unfortunately. This is a new architecture, and with that, sometimes comes some bugs and some things that need to be worked out. It's bleeding edge for a reason. Heat definitely seems to be an issue. Yeah, it appears to be a problem. It seems Intel is really pushing these to their limits. So much like they were doing on 14 nanometer, kind of clocking them to their absolute max to try to keep up in this game with Ryzen. They've got this new architecture right out, fresh out of the bag, and they are clocking it to its absolute max. And if you recall, if you've been in the hardware addiction arena for a while, AMD used to be known for this too. When they couldn't compete with Intel at all, they would release new chips and they would just be clocked to the absolute max. And what does that do when you put clock it to the absolute max and it runs the absolute maximum all the time? It heats up your entire room. Yes. And the AMD used to be known as the room heaters, space heaters. Yep. I used to have a laptop with that was AMD in it and it like it got really hot a lot. It actually got to the point where, you know how all the laptops that you get, well, most laptops anyway, uh, still do it but it, back in the day this was like i don't know 10 years ago or more but back in the day they always had these stickers that are on the front like the top of the laptop next to the touchpad and they use some kind of adhesive that is so ridiculously strong that you have to take forever to get them off if you want to get them off but this laptop at the time got so hot that it loosened the glue of the stickers. Wow. So yeah, that's hot. they just kind of came off on their own wow. a little bit. That's, that's a bit bad. Uh, but n at least, you know, now AM AMD is nothing like that anymore. So it seems like Intel is, you know, they've traded places. Uh, I, hopefully it's not that bad, but it does seem like they have definitely traded in their becoming the space. Well, the good news is the i5 fares much, much better, which we'll get into when we talk about performance than their flagship, which is why I think, again, the i5 is really the star of the show here. The i9s just really, they push that flagship to the max and it's got some heat issues that are being generated from it. Now, I don't think it's as bad as maybe AMD bulldozer line heat, but Basically, everybody who's running these is recommending you get one heck of a good CPU cooler if you're going to use one of these, which creates the other issue. Even though the pricing is very competitive, it's a hard sell, as AMD knew and experienced, to get people to switch. Because not only do they have to invest in a new motherboard if they wanted to go Intel, but they also have to buy a new CPU. And now they have to buy a really powerful cooler and you likely are going to want to get that DDR5 RAM, which is going to be expensive as well, although the boards do support DDR4, so that's not a must. 
But those other things are a must, and that's expensive. So when you add the $289 plus another $300 motherboard plus another $150 cooler, it starts adding up pretty quick. And if you're already on AMD, which it took AMD a while to get everyone to switch from Intel to them, it's kind of a hard sell unless you really got something that blows AMD out of the water. And I'm not quite sure this is it. It's good. Its performance is really, really good. But it's it's not a... AMD destroyer, much like Ryzen kind of was to Intel. One of my concerns with the heat, yeah, it's not fun to have your room heat up, especially in the summer, but it's the way that it affects the hardware over time. We know heat is the death of things like this. We want to keep them as cool as possible. When you're spending that extra money for the i9, and especially where this is where it is affected the most compared to some of the other chips with that push, it's, okay, I buy this, and how long is it going to last? How many years is it going to last? There is a good chance that they will come out with some firmware updates, motherboard updates that help with this heat issue. But right off the bat, you've got to be wondering, how is this heat right now affecting the longevity of this CPU that I just bought? Absolutely. And this is the universal truth, whether you're talking about CPUs or even talking about cars. The parts wear out because of the heat. That's why when you get sports cars and things like that, which I knew nothing about. I just talked to friends that do. You know, their parts in the performance cars wear out faster because they're under constant pressure, constant heat. Same thing with CPUs. They can wear out very fast and components around them can actually wear out as well because of all the heat being generated. So if you do get one, you want to get a really powerful cooler. But then I got to think, man, we're in the middle of a supply chain disaster on top of all of this. So are they even going to be able to get these chips to the market at these prices? So even if somebody wanted to pick one up, could they find one? And number two, will the stores sell them for the $289 or scalpers going to do what they do and go buy them all up and try to resell them for all five, $600 and things, which I think could hurt Intel uh, in the long run. And then there's little things that I think will get worked out, but like Windows 10 doesn't have a scheduler to handle this new design yet with the big little architecture which means you're going to have to use Windows 11 to get the full performance out of it. And a lot of people were very resistant to moving to 11 right now. There's just a lot of concerns of the way that they're doing things with Windows 11. So I think that's another consideration that you're not going to necessarily have to deal with AMD. To be fair, they do plan out pushing some patches to help with this for Windows 10. But they are wanting you to upgrade because they're not going to be pushing out these patches until sometime next year. They're holding off on them in hopes, I'm guessing, for more people to make the jump from Windows 10 to 11. And they've done that with pretty much every single OS upgrade they've done. They've held off on certain things, certain patches, because they really do want people to jump to the next generation and they'll eventually support it, just not right away. Now that we've gotten through some of the ugly stuff, let's go back to some of the fun stuff that I really like hearing because this competition, like Michael was saying, is the reason why we have Intel being competitive in things like price. This is why Intel's pushing themselves in innovation. So the benchmarks that have come out are pretty awesome. They even beat AMD's top-of-the-line processors in certain cases. However... The power requirements means it's cooking the chip too, as we mentioned. So the performance cores are unrestrained, meaning they can suck as much power over, even though they're rated at 150 watts, they can use as much power as they need. Assuming good thermals, some of these benchmarks were showing that it was pulling 250 watts of power instead of the 150 watt rating, while the Ryzen's in these benchmarks we're staying at that 150 watt mark. So when you talk about heat generation, right? That's a that's a lot of power that CPU is sucking up in order to perform at that level and, and beat these AMD chips out. So I think that's a really interesting problem. And what you're also saying is that you need to make sure you have a really good PSU in your system if you plan on running these at that level as well. That is a really powerful point there because if you try to run this thing on just a bare minimum power supply you're going to be having lots of random errors or shutdowns and other things as the cpu is kind of sucking up that power now this is where the i5 is the best value 
because in those same benchmarks where it was really doing amazing against the Ryzen 5, beating it in many areas, it was not doing the same power consumption. It was staying right there cool at the 150 watts it was rated at. And so to me, again, that, that Core i5 is, if I'm going to build an Intel, that's where I'm headed right now at this point is where I, what I would grab up. And then there's gaming, which showed off the efficiency core capabilities and the CPU doesn't have to work as hard since the GPU course is taking all the pressure. And so it remained cooler during gaming sessions. So the benchmarks where it was just eating everything up were things where it was rendering and doing things heavily on the CPU itself. But of course, games and things are gonna offload a lot to your GPU. So they were, they were able to stay a lot cooler in those scenarios. I don't wanna be a Debbie Downer here again, but it does have to be said that some people are having issues, and this is mainly for Windows 10 as well, running games with this new CPU. Part of the problem is, is it's bouncing back and forth sometimes between a P core and an E core. You're getting DRM errors that are being thrown up. And so while it could be amazing for gaming, that is an issue that you need to pay attention to if you're wanting to pick up one of these games. And I know there's already lists out there for games that are affected on this. Check to see if the game that you love that you can't live without is on that list on a Windows 10 system and decide whether it's time to upgrade right now for you or not. Yeah, there's about 50 games so far that won't work on Alder Lake at all. And this isn't necessarily Alder Lake's problem. I mean, it is because it's only happening on their chip, but it's really DRM. DRM sucks. Right. DRMs always sucked. And this is why DRM shouldn't exist in the first place. But DRM is such garbage that it thinks that the performance cores and the efficiency cores on the chip belong to two separate different PCs and therefore it won't allow the games to run because it feels like you're pirating them or something else. It's just complete garbage malware that they put into these games that cause this type of issue. And unfortunately, Intel's the victim of this. Should they have tested this and try to work this stuff out beforehand? Yes. Should they have to be doing this? No, because DRM sucks. Do we get that clear? DRM sucks. Everyone agree? I'm pretty sure we have that clear. Um, yeah, I think I, I got clear. Okay, got cool. It. And don't think that you're just because your game starts, you're out of the woods. Some of these games, you're well into gameplay before something happens in that switching and the DRM kicks in and you get booted from your game. Yeah, at the worst possible moment. Right. Speaking of gaming, though, in the benchmarks, they fared very well. 3 to 10%, sometimes more gains on average in most of the gaming benchmarks that they did, uh, showing just an incredible gain from Intel in their performance that they have. I think the architecture is clever. I think they're pushing the envelope with the PCIe 5 and the DDR5 combination. I think it's important to note that a lot of those benchmarks had that combination where they're comparing against AMD with PCIe 4 and DDR4, but that's fair because that's all AMD has out now. But it's not like AMD's likely, Lisa Sue's not going to be sitting on her hands just like, oh, well, I guess we got beat. So I, I'm imagining AMD's got some things where Lisa Sue will be taking the stage and showing some impressive things that AMD's doing. And while AMD seemed to beat out Intel in rendering in very complex scenarios in Blender, Intel fared very well in your regular tests. So if it was a very complex render, AMD seemed to win those benchmarks. If it was your kind of standard renders through Blender, then Intel seemed to do very well in those tests using the DDR5 memory in the optimum Intel scenario once again. So while I would say this is real competition, it's not the slaughter that Intel was probably hoping for. Uh, it's still a hard sell. Like I said, when you talk about it being kind of small gains here and there in comparison, but I'm just so happy to see Intel back in the fight and competing at price for the first time in like, well, forever. And hopefully this is a glimpse of things to come with Apple showing how powerful ARM can be and AMD bringing constant pressure on innovation. Intel is just going to have to do better at disrupting the market. And I think they showed us that they're willing to take some risks, which we haven't seen from Intel in a long time. So I'm kind of like hats off to them. I hope they can do more. And I hope to see more from Intel. And I'm very happy to see these benchmarks come out where they are beating AMD in some of these areas because it makes AMD also get off their butt and start putting some more innovation in. Because at the end of the day, 
we've got a really good three-way race here with Apple, ARM, Intel, and AMD kind of going at it head-to-head. Once they get through these growing pains, I cannot wait to see what else comes from them. It's always rough in the beginning when you're trying new things. They'll get through this, and once they're past that, I can't wait to see what it is, what they've got. This episode of Hardware Addicts is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication such as master passwords, adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. Bitwarden is a password manager that I use and trust because it is open source, you can self-host it, plus they do security audits and share all of that information with you. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. But hey, you want that premium account? It starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that premium account? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com to get started for free. If you're like me, though, you're going to want to help support this open source project and get that premium edition that starts at just $10 per year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. All right, Wendy, take us into the camera corner and tell us why camera firmware, why does it even matter? That is a really good question. We know that firmware on our routers is super important to update because that is security related. We know that firmware on our motherboards can give us new features, security patches, and the like. Now, are we really worried about security patches on our camera? No, not really. But there is a plethora of new features that can come out and bug fixes that are related to them. Let me ask you, though, on the camera firmware not really mattering for security, I agree with you, but so many cameras now, though, are coming with Wi-Fi access or network access. And then I guess that could be like a printer, a jumping off point for others to break the security in that and get to other devices on your network. So I'm thinking security in firmware is becoming more and more important, especially if you take your camera and connect it to your Wi-Fi network, for instance. That is an excellent point if it is connecting to Wi-Fi or Bluetooth at all. Sometimes that can need upgrades for security reasons. Now, there is a whole bunch of cameras that recently just got announced that they are getting firmware security patches. And that is a bunch of the Nikon line. So I'm not saying most of you have one of these new Nikon cameras, But regardless of which camera you have, it's pretty important to go check to see if there is a new firmware upgrade available. So what are some of the updates that are coming with the Nikon mirrorless cameras? One of them is it's being able to have support for new mount adapters. It's getting support for new lenses, especially when you're on this cutting edge market of the mirrorless camera new lenses coming out, different software being related to the body and the lens. This can make the difference between that lens you wanting actually working on your camera body or not. Then you have things like flicker being reduced or the autofocus working better or at all. They're having issues with settings on your camera, setting it into locking up and not being able to use your camera until you turn it off and turn it back on again. As we are going more and more into cameras that are relying on software on the back end to run the sensor, to run your viewfinder, and all those little details in between, these firmware updates make the difference in I love using my camera and I hate using my camera at times. Now, one of the issues that I've noticed in technology, since we've had firmware updates so easily accessible, it's become much safer 
to do these type of updates than it was in the past is that manufacturers are getting lazy in their launches. So they'll release new cameras out there, features that they advertise are working aren't. And of course they come out and say, well, we'll fix it with a firmware update or the features don't work as well. Is this something that's happening in the camera market or something you're concerned with happening because of the fact that these are all connected devices now, internet of thing devices that manufacturers are just going to get lazy and start rolling these cameras out with bugs all over the place. I haven't seen this as much with cameras as we have with certain kinds of hardware. We were talking about the Intel AMD battle. This comes back to the NVIDIA AMD battle when it comes to graphics cards. AMD was really, really good at launching this amazing hardware and sending really, really crappy drivers out with it. We've seen that happen and how it's been bad for the hardware in general. Camera manufacturers haven't seemed to be making that mistake as far as I've seen when it comes to review of these. But as you are dealing with screens that don't ever turn off as you're using them, Flickr can be an issue. Or like this subject tracking or eye detection, just being able to say, hey, we've made an upgrade to this and now works even better and you're getting more from the camera you own. If they do start putting out really crappy software, firmware with their cameras from the beginning, I will let you know which ones those are as I'm watching reviews and say, hey, kind of avoid these ones at least for the first six months, whatever, until they get the bugs worked out. But so far, manufacturers of cameras have been really good about putting good software out with it, but also saying, you know, there's still bugs to things. We can still improve the software. And it's nice knowing that once you buy the camera, they're not abandoning you. They're still providing updates to that firmware that makes using your camera better. That's what's neat about this technology is the ability to update your firmware, get new features or enhance the features that you have or fix bugs. I mean, it's amazing that we have that because we didn't have that capability in the past. It wasn't as easily accessible. I think the issue comes with like what you were talking about is when companies start relying on the fact that we can fix it later with software and just get the hardware out there. Now, that's where it starts to get real ugly. And we've seen it happen near and every single instance of technology out there. But with these cameras here, you're dealing with a very professional group of people. You can't afford to roll out a professional camera. Somebody's going to be going to someone's wedding to take pictures of and be having major bugs that end up causing issues where the, the photos don't come out right and things like that. And you just can't afford that. So hopefully it doesn't hit the camera market, but I would imagine it's coming. I just get this feeling. If it's going to happen, I would say it would be more on the economy line of cameras instead of the professional cameras, because you're right. The companies can't afford to have professional photographers angry because of a client that's angry as images didn't come out the way they're supposed to. Now, typically, if you're doing any event or whatnot, you're still checking to make sure things are coming out. I know that when I've done a couple weddings in the past, not my favorite thing to do, like really... Ugh, gross. But you are wanting to make sure because you have so much pressure on your shoulders. This is the wedding. This is a big day. While family shoots, for the most part, you can retake them. You can never recreate a wedding. You can't recreate that day. So it is imperative that not only is the photographer doing their job and getting the right shots, their hardware is doing its job and getting those shots. And you have to have hardware that you can rely on. So you're double checking. Sometimes you have, like one of my camera bodies, I can have two SD cards inside of it, and it could be sending the same picture to both SD cards. So there's a backup of that image. That's neat. I've never seen that. So that's kind of like a RAID setup within a camera itself. That's pretty cool. Exactly. So you, I've learned something new about you in this discussion, Wendy. You think weddings are gross, but love spiders. So that's a really interesting take <laughs> on your personality there. Yeah. The reason why I hate, and I don't hate going to weddings, so it's definitely not my favorite thing. Anybody who knows me, I'm not a big kind of dress up person. But 
being there and being the photographer, like I said, the stress of taking those pictures. And then there's usually so much drama around weddings. I'm not good with drama. I could never be a professional wedding photographer. The people who do that, you're amazing. I'm so glad you can. But between the pressure of it being the day and the drama that is typically around weddings, yeah, I avoid them. It would be fun to get shots of like a groom or bride running off though and escaping the wedding, you know, things like that. <laughs> that would be fun to capture in the moment. Be fun for you, but not for anybody else. Is there anything else people need to consider when it comes to firmware? Is there a bricking problem that can happen here? Like could happen with a BIOS update, for instance, with the motherboard, or there are certain risks? Should you read everything before you update? Or are, you, are these usually very well thought out and done? And if you have a firmware available, go to the manufacturer's website and install it immediately. I've personally never had an issue with a firmware upgrade. They're typically very clean. How you do the upgrade does differ from camera to camera. Sometimes they will have you do it with software on your computer and that'll do the upgrade process. Sometimes you will take the firmware upgrade file, put it on your SD card, and put it in your camera. If you have a way to verify that file, always do. I mean, you really don't want to try to flash a corrupted file. And typically, if it's not reading properly, if there's something wrong with the file, it's not going to install the way it should, the camera typically says, uh, I can't. I can't install this upgrade. But for your safety, like with any upgrade, Go ahead and read through the information. I like to check forms, that kind of thing. See if there's anything wrong with it. Typically, there's not. Like, it is more of a, I've had updates go wrong in the past for phones and that kind of thing that has me a little leery, but it is not an issue with cameras in general. Very nice. So do you upgrade the firmware all the time? Are you checking once a month, every six months, once a year? How often does firmware usually come out? Neither one of my camera bodies right now is getting upgrades anymore. If you have a newer camera, I would be checking every couple of months and seeing what updates there are, what fixes there are to it, and installing them as you go. If you have an older camera, you just bought the body, that kind of thing, there may be one or two upgrades to check. It really depends on where you are in the life of that camera body. My DSLRs aren't as important anymore, and they're as good as they're going to get, essentially. But if you do have a mirrorless body, especially a newer mirrorless body within the last, I'd say, three to four years, really be checking to see those updates and what benefits your camera body can get from doing that. Well, I know I learned something about this because I'm staring at my camera right now, Michael. I don't know about you going, I've never looked for firmware or updated the firmware on the Sony mirrorless that I have here. I was yeah. about to say that exact yeah. thing. However, uh, I, to say that I have never looked is not accurate because as she's saying we should look, ah, I did. Nice. <laughs> Mission so accomplished. So I am on the Sony website right now going do i have updates uh yes oh there are updates updates darn it yes uh it seems uh, she mentioned uh, wendy mentioned how it's going to be different for every camera body and wow is this this seems like a lot of effort to do so well if it's anything like michael taking new products out of a box it'll be six months before he updates the firmware but i want you to know wendy i'll look at it and get it updated And I'll let you know how things go with the Sony here. And uh, we'll see. It won't be six months until he upgrades it. It'll be six months until he downloads it. That's true. Good point. Okay. Now that is probably accurate to some degree, but also how rude. 100%. (laughs) You're welcome. Well, that's it. Our 48th episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you your biweekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all of the great content on Destination Linux Network. Head to DestinationLinux.network and check out all the amazing podcasts and YouTube partners available. There's so much to fill your brains with. And did you know there's hardware addicts? It's, It's almost the Christmas season here. It's the holiday season. Gifts are abound. You want to get something for that person you love. Why not get a hardware addicts 
shirt or hardware addicts. I don't know. Do we have aprons yet, Michael? There's hardware addicts, all kinds of stuff out there. We do. Hardware addicts aprons, hardware addicts mugs. You can get a cool mug that actually has the hardware addicts uh, circuit board design that's wrapped around the mug. It's. Dope. I mean, if, if you want to know if your loved one really loves you, you'll open your gifts this season. And if there's not a hardware addicts thing in there, well, you know the answer. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. We hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you next time for another episode of Hardware Addicts, where the performance is always over 9,000. And just so you know, this episode was benchmarked at 12,900K. Wow, that's impressive. It is. That's why there's so much heat pouring out of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's hot. It's a very hot podcast. <laughs> so hot. So hot. So hot. Ha <laughs> ha.